There are times where you can afford to redecorate your house, and there are times where you need to focus on rebuilding its foundation. Today, we have to focus on foundations. Hello and welcome to NPR's Planet Money. I'm Adam Davidson. And I'm Laura Conaway. This is Friday, February 27th, and I think I'm looking at a very tired Adam Davidson. Yeah, it's been an intense week, a good week. We have brought you stories on Morning Edition, on All Things Considered, and of course, culminating in our big hour on This American Life this weekend. Ira, I got to say. Ira Glass. Ira Glass says it's brilliant, it's wonderful. Alex and I say we're too tired and too we've been working too hard and we have no perspective whatsoever. But I think it will be a good hour where we're going to really try and just in a simple, straightforward way, like we did on the subprime mortgage crisis last year, just explain how banks work and what's wrong with them and some of the ways to fix them. Cool. For right now, we're going to talk about one of the ways for fixing a bank or maybe a way that one person doesn't want to see us fix the banks. And we're also going to hear from economists about your interview, Adam. One of the things that happened to you this week was you talked to Tim Geithner. Yeah, the Treasury Secretary. Let's get to that in a minute. But um, first, there is a lot of news today on Friday. We've heard about this all week, but Citigroup does seem to have a new deal with Treasury. Um, The government, um, you may remember, uh, gave them $45 billion in exchange for preferred stock in Citigroup. Now Citigroup, they're not getting new money. What they're doing is they're converting $25 billion of that $45 billion from preferred stock to common stock. That's roughly $25. The government says they want to... uh, go halvesies, basically, that they want Citigroup to find someone <laughs> <Man>. else. <laughs> yeah. Um, so so this means that the government could end up owning a f- far more significant share of the company, more than a third of it. But crucially, this was carefully, carefully designed to prevent the U.S. government from owning a majority of Citigroup and becoming its primary owner. But this does mean that the government will have voting rights, that they'll be able to kick people off the board, it seems like, and have a lot of influence over how Citigroup is run, even more than they do already. Okay, but none of those numbers in the Citigroup deal are the ones that especially shocked us today. No, because there was one number that that really, yeah, this shocked us. This was was our Planet Money indicator, 6.2%, which is how much the U.S. economy shrunk by, if you did it on an annualized basis using seasonally adjusted data for the last three months of 2008. Yeah, and that number is actually revised down from an earlier figure for gross domestic product, which, of course, is the sum total of everything bought and sold and paid and earned. The government originally said that GDP had been shrinking at 3.8%. Which is pretty bad. I mean, a a healthy economy, a healthy U.S. economy should be growing at 2.5%, a year. So, um, Shrinking at any rate is bad, but shrinking at 3.8% is bad. Economists were very pessimistic. They said, I think that 3.8% number is a little low. We think the economy really shrunk at an annual rate of 5.4%. Yeah, but this thing, this when they go back and tote it all up again and put in the final numbers and it comes out 6.2%, that is the worst shrinkage in a quarter century. Yeah, I get so tired, i got to be honest, of every week having to read numbers and say, and that's the worst in 20 years, 30 years, 50 years. But there There it is. is. We're reporting the facts. So um, at the end of the show, we're going to have a Main Street indicator for you from someone whose work has, like the U.S. economy, been shrinking a fair amount. 
So, Adam, in the middle of all this work you've been doing, you've had a couple of really interesting phone calls. One of them was with this guy, William Isaac. Yeah, he he calls himself Bill. He tells everyone to call him Bill. Um, he ran the FDIC back in the early 1980s. And um, I, I talked to him a lot about bank nationalization because as the former head of the FDIC, he has a unique perspective on this issue. So what does he think? All right. Basically, he says he personally and uniquely has been down this nationalization road before. And he says it's, in his view, it's a bad idea. If you define nationalization the proper way, which is the government seizes control of the ownership and management of a company, in this case a bank, as far as I know, I am the only person uh, who has ever nationalized a, a, a bank in the, United, in the United States. What what happens when you take over a bank, when you nationalize a bank? What, what How many people are involved? How, how many people at, at the FDIC working for you were involved? Oh, I, I, I don't know how many, but it probably was uh, at least 100 or 200 people were involved. And and what are they doing? I mean, do you... You you don't you don't suddenly have a a guy from the FDIC working the 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 teller window right or you know um, stocking the coffee in the lobby or whatever what 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 do you do what do you eliminate positions and take them over is there actual government officials in the bank how how does it work what's the well beginning? what what we did back then was to try to do it in a uh, in a way in which we had as little involvement as we could as we could have and. Um, one thing we did was we hired, you know, we bought a, a, about, I think it was about $5 billion of problem loans from Continental, and we, we at a discount, and we hired Continental to manage those problem loans uh, for us and, and uh, collect them and, and service them and the like. Um, we gave them guide, we gave them an incentive arrangement so they had every reason to make the collections. Uh, properly, and then we also gave them guidance on on uh, what they had authority to do and what they needed approval from us to do. And then we had a team of people, lawyers and and uh, business people from the FDIC who oversaw that that collections and servicing process by Continental. So and that's probably where most of the people that uh, uh, would have been involved. We also. Uh, removed, oh, I don't know, I think it was about two-thirds of Continental's board and uh, and required the bank to nominate new directors and subject to FDIC approval. Um, we eliminated some of the top management, and we, we hired new people uh, to come in and run Continental. So it's kind of like if Warren Buffett had bought the bank, he might have said, well, I, I I've now have the vast majority of shares. Uh, I'd like to get rid of a bunch of board people. I don't like the management. It, it's not that terribly different, right? Yeah, and, and the other thing is, though, that the, the other things were pretty harsh because we said, uh, we said, give us a business plan for shrinking this bank by 50% within the next three years. Which is not what Warren Buffett would No, he would done. not do that. He would say, give me a business plan for making it twice as big as it is in the next three years or something like that. And uh, so our, our, our objective was to shrink this thing down and have it be less risky. And we also required uh, – we had, we had the right to 
approve hiring and firing decisions and compensation for senior people. Um, and we also required our approval if they were going to undertake any new business activities or increase the risks in any way in the bank. Yeah, I wanted to go through what what were they allowed to do on their own without calling you guys, and what what when did they have to call you? Like, would the new CEO be on the phone with the FDIC every every couple of hours? Do you think, or was it once a week? They had a, a uh, they knew what the the rules were, and that is if they wanted to make some major investments and anything day to day, we didn't get involved in. But if they wanted to deal with hiring and firing the top, I don't know how many people it was. Let's say twenty or thirty people. Uh, and the compensation of those people, they, they needed to clear that through us. And if they were going to undertake any kind of a uh, new business initiative of consequence, they, they needed to come to us. But, no, they didn't, they didn't call us every day. And, but it's kind of weird. It's, they're no longer running it at, at, like any private business to, to grow and make a steady profit, right? They were running it. They had this other, in, other goal. To, to to shrink. I mean, you, it's hard to find a business whose goal is to shrink. No, that, 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 that's exactly right. And that's one of the things that I wrote in the Wall Street Journal. I don't see how you do it uh, without destroying our economy. Uh, Continental held just under 2% of the banking assets in the United States. The three or four largest banks uh, today uh, have somewhere around 50% of the banking assets. If we were to try to nationalize them, they are going to shrink significantly, partly because the the, the FDIC or the regulators generally will want them to shrink uh, so that they can reduce the risks. Uh, it, it, would, it would be unacceptable for them to take on new risks and big new losses while they were while they were owned by uh, the FDIC. And 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 but even if they didn't want them to shrink, they would shrink because the marketplace would run away from them. Um, and, and so, yeah, let, let me understand that. So, so because I got to say, so far you've made me feel like, well, nationalization isn't that big a deal. You get you get a hundred technocrats to sort of oversee some details. You you get some, you know, respected graybeards in there, and 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 you give them some clear instructions, and and and, and that's that. Why can't we just do that for Citibank and Bank of America? And if you were to do that today, um, you're, you're talking about incapacitating essentially half the banking system. I mean, if you if you were to nationalize, let's say the top four banks, and I don't believe we can stop at one. Some people think, well, why don't we just do it with this one? Well, I I believe that the that the marketplace would would take several of them down. They'd, you mean if you do Citibank, then Bank of America shareholders and bondholders will freak out and run away, and then basically Bank of America collapses, and you have to take them over with, without without using the names because I don't like to talk about specific banks. But but I believe that if you if you were to take down one of the big banks, that that the, the, then the short sellers and speculators would attack the next one, and once they got that one stock down to a penny or whatever they'd, they'd come after and, and it got nationalized they'd come after the next one I uh, this marketplace has been brutal is there a manpower constraint here I mean you you had a hundred people to nationalize and I know we're talking rough numbers here but roughly a hundred people to nationalize a 40 billion dollar bank is it 
is it sort of equivalent a two trillion dollar bank, which is I'm just doing the math in my head, um, ten, a hundred, like fifty times bigger? So um, would it need five thousand people, or does it not quite work that way? No, it it, <laughs> it probably does work that way. It, you you need a lot of people, and these banks are also so they're so much more complex today. Uh, and they're spread out all over the globe. Continental was pretty plain vanilla by today's standards. It didn't have bizarre securitized assets that maybe even the lawyer who invented them doesn't understand them completely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and, you know, the, the other, we haven't even gotten to the other part of it, which is once you do nationalize, let's say, several of these banks, what are you going to do with them? Um in, in the case of Continental, the FDIC didn't wasn't able to divest it for seven years. It was seven years before it got rid of its all of its interest in Continental. And why is that? Just like you couldn't find a buyer who wanted a piece of it. You couldn't make a deal. Well, I, I mean, I I I, had, I left the FDIC within probably a year or so after taking over Continental, so I I can't uh, really talk about. With, with firsthand knowledge as to why they took as long as they did to get rid of it. I know they, I, I think, well, the strategy they took was they, they started unloading parts of it in public offerings. And the market can only digest so much at once. And so they, I think they did, my memory is they did several public offerings until they got it public uh, entirely. And then, uh, uh, and then about three years after it was uh, the FDIC got out, uh, Bank of America bought it. Uh, so it didn't it it didn't stick. It didn't it was it never did become a viable competitor again. So, um, but anyway, l- let's say we have let's say we have three or four of these banks nationalized. They control fifty percent of the banking system, and they, you know, before nationalization, they're they total maybe. $8 trillion in size? Yeah. Where, where, who are you going to sell them to? I don't know how you do a public offering that big or a series of public offerings that big. Uh, Since to, you're selling the only companies big enough to buy those right. co- themselves. And and uh, who, who, you can't sell to foreign interests. You can't. We're never going to accept uh, a foreign power having that kind of control over our economy. So you can just take all that foreign money or most of it off the table. It can be part of a deal, but it can't be a major part of a deal or it's not going to pass muster. Adam, we'll link to that Bill Isaacs piece in the Wall Street Journal when we post the podcast today. It's, it'll be on the blog at npr.org slash money for you out there. And you, Adam, had yet another call that this one made a really big splash right here at Planet Money World Headquarters. Yeah, that was when we got a call from Treasury Secretary Tim Geithner's office saying he would give us an interview. And, and I'll be honest, I did. I asked for a lower level staffer. I even said off the record is fine. I just want to go over some details. And then they say, well, do you want to talk to the man himself? So we posted the whole thing, the whole conversation on the podcast Wednesday. And listeners, ever since you guys have just been all over the map about it. Right. I mean, Geithner... Clearly, you know, let's be fair, he stayed very much on message. And a, 
a lot of people, myself included, were trying to read through and, and trying to figure out what, what was the substance that he was saying, because there was a lot of... Uh, he, I, Talking points? Yeah, it was, it was it was straight talking points. Yeah, but personally, I did think that he said some things that had substance to them. And in any event, we wanted to see what economists might say because, you know, they live in a different world and they might hear what he was saying differently. Right. So so one guy we thought of right away was Amar Sufi, who teaches at the University of Chicago Booth School of Business. Um, he says, of course, Geithner stayed on message. Um, he is in many ways, the most influential man in the world right now. If he orders the wrong thing for lunch, it could cause a bank run. Yeah, and Geithner had to speak very, very carefully. But there is this one part, Adam, where Amr Sufi says he thinks that Tim Geithner tipped his hand. And I have to say, this part is mostly you, Adam. You're talking about a dollhouse that was bought with a mortgage for 100 bucks. Right. This is a metaphor that we use on the podcast before to explain how banks work. And it's something that'll play a big role in our This American Life sh- show. And it, and it's something I talked to the sec- Treasury Secretary about. So in, in my stylized example, if I can see if I can paraphrase you, you're saying the market thinks that house is worth $50, not because the house isn't worth that much, but because people aren't buying dollhouses because they can't get the financing. We feel confident that six months, a year, two years from now, that house will be closer to its par value, closer to 100. So it makes no sense for us to force that bank to collapse under the weight of, of the deficit. Is, is very, that... well, very well said. So Amr Sufi told me that what he hears in this is there are two ways you can view the bank crisis. The first is that it's this problem of insolvency, meaning that some of the big banks are really, truly broke, and there is no reason to keep pouring taxpayer money into them. Right. The government should just take them over, if you believe that, but uh, and then sell them to someone else. But But the other argument is that we don't have an insolvency problem. We just have a liquidity problem. That's a fancy way to say that the banks have all these toxic assets, but they're really worth something more than people are willing to pay now. But people just don't have the money to pay, so they're not paying for it right now. But if the government can just kind of help the banks muddle through a while, the situation will stabilize. The banks will be healthy again. All will be well. So when Geithner says to Adam, that's very well said, Amr Sufi hears liquidity crisis. You never know what these guys actually believe, right? Because they can't say what they actually believe. Um, But he did a pretty convincing job that he really does believe that this is just a liquidity problem. And therefore, the role of the government is to inject equity to get these banks through this liquidity crisis uh, with the view that, look, you don't want to come in and restructure or force these guys into Chapter 11 or nationalize because they're not insolvent. They're perfectly solvent. They just need to get through these rough patches. Do you yourself come down on one side of the debate or the yes, other? Yes, very strongly. These institutions, most of them are, in fact, insolvent. I, I I don't believe it at all for a second that this is still a liquidity crisis. All right. We also talked to Russ Roberts. He's a George Mason University economist. He also runs the Econ Talk podcast, which is award-winning. Yes. I got to say that I was listening to the Econ Talk podcast this week, and I said, I want to have an opportunity to say on our podcast what I love about Russ Roberts' podcast. And it is this. Russ Roberts is an economist, but in his podcast, he's really struggling to figure stuff out. Unlike many economists, not all, but many, he's willing to admit that he doesn't understand a lot when he doesn't understand. I mean, obviously, Russ does understand plenty of things, but and he's willing to be very clear about that. So that that being said, um, 
one thing he doesn't need to figure out is what he thinks about much of what the Obama administration is doing. He doesn't like it. He hates the stimulus package. He doesn't like the bank bailouts. Um, he really believes, let the market sort it out. Let the banks fail. Yeah, let them fail. He also did not like listening to Geithner swerving around your questions, Adam. But Russ Roberts keyed in on a couple of parts, including this. The government has to take risks that the private market cannot take at this time. And that is a necessary thing to do, because if we don't do that, then we're going to see much more damage to businesses and families across the country. And here's what Roberts thought when he heard that. Well, we're not going to have a recovery until the private sector takes risks. It's always easy for the government to take risks because they're taking risks with other people's money. He's saying that the government has to be the player at the table. The government has to roll the dice. And with the justification, the justification is if we don't do that, it's going to be so much worse. And the right question is, how do you know? You're rolling, you're rolling the dice with my money, claiming it's for my own good. You're going to save me money in the long run? What's the evidence for that? Why am I not worried that you're going to make the wrong kind of investments with my money because you don't have the right incentives to take care with my money? I, I really don't find that comforting at all. So we're going to turn to Simon Johnson, who you do hear an awful lot of on this podcast because, well, we do like Simon a lot. Um, and he started this whole Geithner analysis by blogging his reactions on his own blog, uh, BaselineScenario.com. Johnson goes straight to this exchange right here. I am confident that that broad strategy would be would cause more damage to the economy and the financial system. The nationalization strategy. That broad strategy would, people mean different things by it, but what many people mean, would be more damaging to the, process, to the cause of getting the financial system working again more quickly and supporting the kind of flow of credit necessary for recovery. Now, Simon Johnson gives Geithner big points for managing not to say the word nationalization. Simon Johnson is a former chief economist of the IMF. He has been prepped himself for this kind of interview. He said Geithner does an Olympic-level job of avoiding a hot question, he calls it. But he also says Geithner got his message across, no nationalization. To me, this was the the real uh, clear clincher that the temporary nationalization, FDIC-type takeover of major banks, is, is, is not imminent, not foreseen. And actually, funny enough, before they run the stress test, they've decided that this is, this is the case. So I'm not quite sure the purpose of these stress tests, um, but there you have it. Now, we're hoping to talk more on, on, on some upcoming podcasts about those stress tests. We're going to dig into them. Many, many, many economists say the tests are, let's just say, not stressful enough. I also want to say we're getting deep into this on the This American Life. I don't seem, mean to be so self-promotional, but I just spent hey, a lot of time on You've been working hard on this now. Yeah, this is a big we, deal for us. We get into this. You'll hear Simon Johnson. Anyway, a lot in the This American Life story. All right. Back in February, we got an email came through with the subject line, please hear me, all caps, lots of exclamation points. That email was from Celeste Lewis. She's an architect in Portland, Oregon, who specializes in residential remodeling. And in her letter, Celeste told us that as confidence in the economy has faltered, so has her business. She says potential clients who want to remodel without a loan were feeling less and less secure. They don't want to lay out the cash. And then two weeks later, we got another email from Celeste saying things had gotten much worse. So Planet Money's own Caitlin Kenny called her up to find out what happened. On a typical um, January, I might, or in February, I might, you know, have as many as mm, nine to twelve inquiries for new work, and 
and I, not every inquiry leads to an interview, and then typically that leads to about, you know, two-thirds of those or half of those, you know, kind of become interviews, and then I'd say another half of those become new new jobs for the year, which is generally between two and four new jobs per year. And I started, I started to see a decline last year in my inquiries for new work, but I was very busy with work I had already taken on from 2007, so I, I kind of didn't think about it much. And those inquiries have really dropped off dramatically since September. And this year, at, at, uh, in January, I was called three times, none of which um, actually capitalized on an interview. So one of the other things that you mentioned in your letter is that talking about laying off your employees. Yes. So how many people do you, do you start with, and you know what are you looking at for staff now? I had two last year, and um, you know I let one go in the summer, and then you know I have one um, very wonderful person working for me right now, and we you know we kind of both saw the work kind of declining, and in November she agreed to work, you know work on a reduced reduced hours, and then in January when you know, late January when it when it looked like I was not going to get any work or potentially not get any work. Um, you know, I was, you know, especially I waited until after the inauguration to kind of make this call. I, um, you know, started in discussions with her quite openly that, you know, that there, you know, there wasn't a lot of work around. We'd already kind of neatened up the office. We've compressed our space. We've done a lot of things you know, that we needed to do to kind of get our housekeeping in order after you've been busy. But that really, you know, if something didn't break, that there would be no work. And we've just had a very open discussion that's, you know, every week we've we've reviewed the situation, reviewed the amount of work, what we're doing, and and each week we've agreed to continue on until the next week. And we've been doing that for about four or five weeks at this point. And, you know, I'm kind of coming down to the end. I, I still hold hope that, you know, next week someone will call me. I mean, I'm really like a phone call away from canceling the doom and gloom, but I'm also, you know, a meeting away from deciding, well, this is the end. You know, Adam, we see these projections from economists about how long this recession is likely to last and people like Fed Chairman Bernanke saying, well, we could start to see recovery in in 2010. That's a long ways away if you're watching a business wither. Yeah, it means thousands of businesses, one can assume, maybe hundreds of thousands, will will not last. Yeah, it's just too far away for them. Keep sending us your Planet Money indicators, please. You can email them to us at planetmoney at npr.org or post them to our Facebook page. We'll link to it from our blog, npr.org slash money. Okay, and we're almost done for today, but Laura, this is this is the thing I, I didn't want to have to do. Um we, we have to say goodbye to Cotty Simon, who has been our wonderful project manager. Um, she's leaving us to go back to her private consulting business. And um, I got to say, you remember before Cotty came on board how I was sort of the project manager. Yes, I do And I think that. it's fair to say I'm not a very good project manager. <laughs> oh, no, you're lovable. Um, we were having fights. Yeah. We were exhausted, more exhausted than we are now. We were things were falling through the cracks and Cotty came and really just made it happen, made it work. And we're, we're really going to miss her. Yeah. We're going to miss you a lot. Cotty. Good luck. Godspeed. You're the best. And, uh, if I can indulge since Cotty and I speak Hebrew, um, 
Um, so listen this week for the Planet Money special on Chicago Public Radio's This American Life. Featuring the immortal words of Caitlin Kinney. But my baby, my baby, <laughs> where will my baby sleep? And we'll see you on Monday. I'm Laura Conaway. And I'm Madam Davidson. Where is Cotty Simon? Thanks for listening. I hate money because it makes me numb. So, so, so.